After the critical and award-winning success of Sense and Sensibility, Lee would focus next on a more intimate production with his adaptation of Rick Moody's The Ice Storm, set against the backdrop of the Watergate scandal as the Thanksgiving break of 1973 reveals in its own scandals between two neighbouring families with parental infidelity and key parties being matched at the same time by youthful sexual awakening. Finally, given the chance to develop a spiritual style, here Lee would deliver one of the key films of the 90s, even alongside the likes of Groundhog Day and the cinematic golden year, which was 1999. I'm Owen. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. Tonight uh, we are talking about the ice storm, and we are actually joined tonight by a guest. It uh, gives us great pleasure to welcome back to the show Norman from Fleck Hunter. So welcome, Norman. Thank you very much. Happy to be back on. Um, obviously, this season we're talking about Ang Lee. We've already covered in our previous episodes the Father Knows Best trilogy, which announced Lee as this sort of art house darling. Um, by producing three films largely in Mandarin, which somehow managed to grasp the attention of uh, of the Western audiences, which at the time were perhaps not as open as they are now to foreign language cinema. And yet through that, he's obviously got, as we saw in the previous episode, he was given the chance to direct the adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, despite having much sort of stress and confusion on on set still manages to lead it to award-winning success and now here he is a studio player and given a chance to really have a project with a lot more freedom i mean here he's working with a budget of 18 million and given a smaller scale than he was previously working with since sensibility it's a much more intimate production yet at the same time working with some very big name players such as calvin klein and sigoni weaver as well as Introducing new youthful faces here, as we've got the likes of Christina Ritchie, Elijah Wood, and uh, Toby Maguire in a pre-Spider-Man role, as well as a perhaps pre-Dawson's uh, Creek Katie Holmes as well, rounding out a very interesting cast in a film which, over the years since its release, has only become sort of more popular and more critically acclaimed it's been re-evaluated. But, Kim, I mean, this is the first time I watched myself, and I'm guessing for yourself as well. And, Norman, I mean, was this first time watch, or you've seen this one before? No, I, I've seen this movie... 20 times, I want to say. Love this film. That's a good start, then. Because there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, it's... On the surface, it seems a very sort of simple sort of plot, but there's actually a lot of real depth to this one. So, I mean, just opening thoughts on this one. I mean, Kim, what did you think of the ice storm? I mean, how did you find it? 
<laughs> I start would be I guess it would be I I think depth is really the 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 best way to say because there's so many um I think it really like dials in on that whole Ang Lee thing that we've been looking at um especially in kind of like the Father Knows Best trilogy where he has a lot more of those you know subtle relationships kind of like things that are kind of like more unsaid but you just have to kind of notice it going on and that sort of uh feeling every character seems to have something going on deep down that you know kind of like um unpacks itself during the the course of the movie yeah um and Norman I mean for yourself I mean what does the ice storm sort of hold for yourself I mean obviously if you've seen it 20 times surely there's something that keeps you coming back to this film I mean I'd be really interested to know what it is about this film that sort of has held such a grasp over your viewing well I think as Kim was stating to just the there's there's hardly ever anybody in an Ang Lee movie that has nothing to do that you think oh they were wasted in this movie um, each character is deeply complex. I like the different levels of relationship. You have the younger kids, you have kind of the teenage kids, and then you have the adults. And you have the adults trying to direct the teenage kids and the younger kids in what they should be doing, but then they do the exact opposite every single time. So it's the, the multiple layers. It's, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, it's the 70s, that whole, the whole 70s me generation. You have Nixon in the background talking about stuff, Watergate going on. It's just, it just layers rolling over you constantly. And uh, always something new to find every time I watch it. Yeah, definitely so. And it's kind of fitting, really, when you consider our current situation as we were recording this. I mean, we've obviously got another presidential impeachment happening at the moment with Trump. Um, currently over here in the UK, it's about about four degrees centigrade, which I'm sure to my Canadian co-host is probably just considered golf weather over there or something. So, But it's bloody cold, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, considering we had an ice storm before, this is like... A wildly familiar situation as you watch, like the movie kind of freezes over and the you know the 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 whole ice storm setting in and whatnot. Yeah, definitely. So now, I mean, the film opens to um, Paul, uh, played by uh, Tommy McGuire here, and he's coming back from from school to spend time with his family, and he's sort of introduces this sort of character you think is going to be the central sort of narrative figure, especially as he's given the chance to set the scene through voiceover, which is something I was really hoping that we'd see kind of throughout being, you know, I'm a big fan of voiceover in film and probably why I prefer the Blade Runner director's cut over the four other cuts we have in that movie just because of its use of voiceover. And yes, I know there's obviously going to be some screenwriting professors out there going... And rolling their eyes at the mention of voiceover because we all know it's a crutch that you're not supposed to use in screenwriting and it's just a sign you can't write properly if you use it. But, you know, I really like voiceover and sadly it's not used enough here. And much like the character of Paul who's basically introduced and then disappears from the Muslim movie only to have a brief sort of dalliance with this this uh, upstate Manhattan uh, girl that he's got a crush on played by Katie Holmes and then sort of... Uh, relegated to just 
replaying the same sequences as we find the film comes full circle. But um, did we feel that he was sort of wasted in this film at all? Tommy Maguire and uh, obviously perhaps to a lesser extent. Um, Katie Holmes? Yeah, Katie Holmes. Did we feel that uh, such young talent was being wasted here? No, my impression of it is that that's kind of how kids in that era kind of treat Thanksgiving. Um, they do, they come home because Thanksgiving is like the biggest holiday in the U.S. Like it's nothing compared, like we have it here in Canada, but it's a minor one here. In the States, it's a whole big deal. Everybody comes home on the Wednesday. They hang out with all their friends. They do family stuff on the Thursday. And the minute they can, they get away to go see some more friends again. So I think that's typical of what uh, a high school kid, uh, sorry, um, a kid of the age of um, Tobey Maguire's character would be doing. Um, you pop in, you show your face to your folks, and you're gone. Your friends have something better to do. There's a girl you're chasing you want to go see. You have something else going on. Yeah, and, and you know, I also I also think that, you know, the Tobey Maguire character, um, I do think he was kind of underused, but at the same time, like... Norman makes a really good point in the fact that, you know, like kids, I think his age was supposed to be 16, is really just, um, you know, he comes home and he's at that, probably that age where he also, he notices those things going on with his parents, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really, you know, want to face them too much. And, you know, there's this really nice, conver- like, interesting conversation that he has with his sister instead before he, like, runs off to meet his friends. Yeah. Um, well, the book, as I said before, it uh, was written by Rick Moody, who is who was uh, was brought to the attention of uh, James Schumann, who's obviously Ang Lee's reoccurring producer, and especially during these early years. And it was uh, through the literary scout Nancy uh, Krikorian who basically brought the book to him. And Schumann felt that it was a, like an extraordinary cinematic book, and he was surprised that no one had actually attempted to adapt it before, especially considering its cinematic possibilities, and knew that Lee was really the only person who could sort of capture the book um at the same time the philosopher Slavoj Zizek has also stated that stated that uh, he is also should be credited with providing the inspiration because at the time that Seamus was reading one of his books now I don't know if uh if, if you've read any of uh Zizek's books at all or seen his documentaries no no I haven't okay well there's a some fun viewing for you if you want to see someone talk at you for two hours and really do some interesting deep dives into cinema that you probably never considered. I mean, he did two films. He did uh, The Pervert's Guide to Cinema and The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, uh, both which take some really interesting sort of insights into uh, the likes of They Live and Jaws and Taxi Driver and other things. But um, that's a subject for a whole other podcast, I feel, because that's a whole other deep hole. That's like talking about Alan Moore just the sort of craziness of that one would take you down but I mean have you did either of you read the book I'm guessing Kim that you didn't because this is your first time watch I mean uh did you uh feel inspired to sort of read the book after you saw the film Norman no no not, not at all I I don't read a lot if I if I read a book before I tend not to go and read a book after because I find there's a lot more in it than the film yeah normally so I tend not to do it the other way okay 
And Kim, when it comes to book to film adaptations, I mean, do you tend to read the books as well, or do you just prefer to watch one or or have it in just the one sort of format? I think it's more the fact that I don't read a lot of dramas in general. Yeah. So that's why, like, the ice storm for me is more like you know watching is fine but i don't know where the reading is going to take me because sometimes with um you know things of this kind of style i've read a lot of i've read some books like this which has these really like moments where you feel all these characters are like when written they're actually really like bad people or like there's some kind of twisty thing in their minds that i'm not a big fan of reading about so, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Like, I can't compare because I've never read it. And I don't really feel, like, the motivation exactly to go and pick up the ice storm right now to go read. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I don't... I, I'm definitely, like... I'm As you think about the ice storm a little bit more, I feel like there's a lot of depth here in the film. But at the same time, it's... N- I like at this current moment that I finished watching it the first time, I don't have that, you know, motivation like Norman to have seen it 20 more times. <laughs> right now, I'm not at that stage yet. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. It's, I mean, this is a film of all the filmography, but this one I was most excited to see. I mean, it's the first time I watched myself, and it's certainly been on the watch list for a while. Um, I think it was after American Beauty came out, a lot of people started comparing. American Beauty to the Ice Storm and saying, you know, you really should check it out. And of course, like any good film that I'm recommended, it's sat on the watch pile and I've just never got around to watching it until now. And I'm like yourself, Kim, I'm still trying to take it all in. I mean, there's a lot to sort of unpack here. I mean, any. If we took away, like, the, the older brother storyline, the Toby McGuire storyline, I feel that, you know, we perhaps would have had a little more sort of streamlined. Uh, production and it's a shame really because the interactions we see with his character whether it's with his roommate or with uh, Kate Hopkins uh, character they're really sort of interesting and they've got potential to go somewhere but they just feel like such an afterthought because they're so barely featured in here and instead we're left to focus on on the the parents who are obviously going for their own conflicts uh be it this whole sexual revolution with the introduction of key parties that have now hit suburbia at this point i mean they introduced the parents talking around uh this dinner party table while the kids are resigned to just acting as servants and uh stealing leftover drinks in the kitchen and the conversation you see between these are like they talk about key parties like it's nothing new it's sort of like oh it's just this hip fun thing to try and did you go and see deep throat and i'm thinking wow people talking about pornography over the in the party setting that's certainly a new one but it was but, different back then though like deep throat would have been like a borderline r movie mm. i think it, you would have to have lined up you would have had to go to the cinema it's it's a lot different than you know how pornography was later on or is now like you, you have to actually go up and go to a cinema to go see that Definitely so. And I mean, certainly when you obviously compare the likes of Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door and Debbie Does Dice, I mean, these are films which actually have plot and artistic merit to them compared, obviously, to the films which followed in the, the 80s. But the problem is whenever we obviously mention like pornography like the 70s and stuff, my mind instantly goes to that scene in Taxi Driver where he takes Betsy to see the Swedish fertility film, passing it off as a film that couples go and see. And even over the dinner point, they're talking about these, like, being surrounded by singles and horny students, like creating this real sort of sleazy 
atmosphere that they've obviously seen this film in um and yet they're talking they're talking about this this film obviously as though it's like any other film like you said i mean it's obviously it's a different sort of way that pornography has been viewed at this at this time um just obviously focusing on the adults at the moment we obviously have the we have it here we find soon after that there is an affair happening between Ben, who's Kevin Klein's character, and he's having an affair with uh, his neighbour Janie, played by Sigourney Weaver, who is just... She's just a man-eating vixen here, and it's just made Kevin Klein's casting not work for me because it's like there'd be no way that he would be able to have any sort of relationship with Sigourney Weaver. She'd eat him alive. But uh, how do we feel about the affair angle that's going on, and just like, just the general interactions between these parents who seem so lost in these changing times? Well, I found it to be the start of the term suburbia hell. Mm. I think it stems from this time period where people go to the suburbs, then they got to take the train into work, like all the men going in dressed exactly the same. Um, everybody's bored. And they're just trying to break their boredom out out in suburbia. So they so this they have an affair to try and break their boredom. And there's a classic line in here when um, uh, Janie's with Ben, and they're kind of done their thing. And the after talk starts, and he starts talking about golf. And her line is, "I already have a husband. You're boring me." Like just <laughs> like just shuts him down completely. But I, th- I think, you know, see, that's that's a really interesting point because I didn't think about it in, like, the sense of the suburban boredom thing, which really does apply because I, I more saw it as, like, the fact that Ben was this, like, wildly uninteresting character. And, you know, he, he like, you know, he, it's like the, the scene after when she's like, oh, she's bored kind of thing with him. And he's, but he just rambles on about things. And... And he's this really odd character. Like, it makes me really wonder how these two, you know, started off this affair to begin with. Is it just because, you know, the convenience of the situation because their families are, are neighbors and they they just, you know, um, they just kind of like, you know, they're just because they're 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 close, like their two families are close to each other. But then, you know, you kind of parallel over to later on when we have, you know, the whole key party deal and and you have um, Elena with uh, with Jimmy, I think his name is. And, you know, that same situation where their views of this whole situation is very different. Yeah, I mean, certainly when it's uh, when it comes to Elena and and uh, and Jimmy, it almost feels like a, a retaliation to the fact that they've discovered their spouses are obviously cheating on them. So it's sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, what if they're going to cheat, then we're going to cheat with each other. It's sort of like this is how we're going to balance things out, and it almost feels like this attempt to like normalize it. But when they do obviously have sex in his, his car, and they realize almost instantly that. Is what a mistake it is. They're not those people. They can't be like their spouses who have chosen to cheat and obviously carry on their the normal relationships uh, as well. And the problem again, this is a problem we have with Ang Lee is the fact that he can't direct sex scenes at all. He is just horrible at whenever he shows sex on film. It's just horrible to look at. So when we have 
Jim and Lena having sex in the car, and it's just awkward and over quick, and it's and it's just got no sexiness to it at all. There's probably more sexual tension between as they're leaving to go uh, out to the car than there is actually what happens in the car. And I could, couldn't tell whether perhaps in a different director will be seeing the scene differently, or is this what Lee is actually intending to show with this sort of sequence that? You know, it's just this desperation for these two characters to try and regain some sort of uh, control over the situation. I'm just not sure whether it's about, like, these affairs and things is about the sexiness of the whole situation. And I think that's why Ang Lee is a good director in that sense. Because I think the, the, the theme of it is not in the, you know, the normal sexy kind of concept, but more of, like, the kind of like the the subtle characters that we have and why they're actually doing this. Okay. Yeah. I would just say it's proximity. If if they if the hoods lived on the block over, mm. there'd be another family nearby, you know, instead of the carvers and the same thing would be going on. And same with the carvers. If someone else moved into the hood house uh, Janie would be involved probably with whoever the dad is there. I think it's proximity. It's again, I, I'll keep going back to this. It's suburbia hell. It's the proximity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we when we get with the key party, we get down to the final three keys. It is all basically just all three of her lovers. And it's obviously got her husband. You've got Ben, and you've got this new guy who she's shown interest with at, at the party, and basically snubbed Ben completely. Um, and it almost it, the fact that she does it in front of him, she shows no shame, no remorse in the fact of snubbing a, a former lover with her new one. But it's funny how she's the alpha of the adults, mm. and her daughter, Wendy Christina Ricci, she's the alpha of the uh, of the kids. Well, her daughter's. Sorry, sorry, I mixed it up. Sorry, yeah, just mixed it up because Elena's yeah. daughter is um, is uh, yeah. Wendy's mother. So. Sorry, yeah, like she's the alpha of the kids. Mm. But uh, there's that scene where obviously we're going. We were catches her with um, with her son in in the bathroom. You know, do, playing the game of you show me yours, I show you mine. And rather than punish her, she almost like corrects her and like gives her this uh, gives her this uh, like advisory talk of. Almost as if she's like telling not to be ashamed of like embracing your sexuality, but to at the same time know how to embrace it, which I thought was very interesting. And I mean, yes, I've seen some people say that she's like trying to mold this next generation in her own image. And I never felt like that. It was just about the fact that here with Sigourney Weaver's character, uh, Janie, she we've got a woman who's very in control of her sexuality. She's not ashamed of enjoying sex, especially of this era where women are supposed to not enjoy sex, they're just there to please their husbands. And here she is. She's, as I said, she has multiple partners. She has affairs and she feels no remorse about anything. It's all about her own pleasure at the end of the day and it felt much more like she was a message she was passing on to Wendy when she obviously walks her out of her house uh, rather than you know just throwing her out and telling her never to come back do we want to talk about Sandy a bit in this in this movie sure. uh, yeah how he's like on the path to becoming a serial killer basically if his actions and what he does all the time <laughs> yeah yeah 
Like, he'd be on a watch list so fast today, it wouldn't be funny. You think so? I mean, the fact he's just there blowing up model airplanes and, and stuff, I mean, that seemed like very sort of normal boys in the country side sort of thing, especially in suburbia, where there's not much else to do. I mean, he's basically got nothing but time on his hands. He's The only sort of frenzy that we see him with is his uh, brother Mikey, who at the same time seems more interested in Wendy than he is actually in hanging out with his younger brother. So it felt more like just sheer boredom, the fact he sort of expresses himself in these dis- these uh these sort of destructive ways. I mean I don't I don't really see it that way because I think I'm more on the line of of what Norman is saying about, you know, I had a feeling that he had this kind of violent streak in him and it was kind of like this really repressed kind of thing because you see him, you know, blowing up all these uh, model airplanes and stuff. But at the same time, when he, he he's kind of like also, you know, being neglected by his brother and his parents kind of find him, you know, his parents seem to find both of them a little weird. Mm. <laughs> and then, you know, they're and then he has this, you know, he worships this girl, um, you know, the words of, you know, Mikey and how Sandy sees um, Wendy pretty much. And and then, you know. There's a moment in the bathroom where he he kind of like freaks out suddenly, and there's these like really huge changes of emotions in in how he reacts to things, and you know maybe his desires or maybe his fear or something that's going on, and you know Sandy is a much more uh, complex character than you know say um, Elijah Woods, you know Mikey. Yeah, yeah, Mikey. I was not too sure what his deal was i mean why does he choose to go out in in the ice storm um it made no sense why he he chooses his moment to go out and have these very sort of childish moments that seem very much the actions of someone younger than him the way that he's sort of screwing around on the diving board and just uh wandering around in, in the storm it made no sort of sense what he was doing out there see i see that he's in his own world like he's kind of in his own world pretty spacey uh, wanted to be one of nature, uh, wants to investigate, in, you know, intuitive towards that type of stuff. So he wanted to go out and see what all the ice storm has that can, what it can bring to him, like what what it looks like, what's going on with nature. I, he's yeah. wrapped up in his own world is what I thought. Mm. Well, because he, he also seems to be like the, he's built as this character who's very interested in this whole science kind of thing, right? So... He gets this whole thing about, you know, your sense of smell and how, you know, this all reflects in this really disgusting comparison. And um, and then, you know, he it's not weird. And then you have those that scene in the in the ice storm where he's kind of like kind of like jumping through it, you know. And I think that it was it, 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 it feels like he is really like just in this world where he's really enjoying this nature thing, especially because, you know, because, you know, for for us who's already gone through an ice storm in 98, we know that this stuff comes, like, every 60 years or something. So it's it's kind of like this rare thing that you don't normally get to see in your life. So it's normal that if he's fascinated with science that he's interested in going out to see this kind of deal. But at the same time, I can kind of see where his character feels like, like, it was a bit forced that he went out in the ice storm. Yeah. And that kind of led to, you know, that <laughs> final, you know, moment for him. 
It certainly is a shocking climax that it brings to the film, for sure. Oh! <laughs> and, <laughs> and I love the fact that you say that he's got this interest in science, yet apparently hasn't figured out how electricity and metal works, so... Maybe he just failed at chemistry. I think he was just shocked. Like, you're shocked if you don't see where this is going, and then it's just, you know, the moment it contacts, that's it, right? Yeah. Um. But, um... I mean, yeah, I feel that uh, the demise of Mikey, while it's certainly important to the film, is it, it's this wake-up moment that these families need. It sort of like snaps them out of their their own preoccupied little worlds that they've been in for pretty much the whole film. They're also caught up in their own little arguments and personal quests for whatever it, it may be, uh, whether it's sort of like fulfillment in their marriage or just general fulfillment, as certainly is the... The case of um, Calvin Klein's character is just still very sort of like carnal. The fact that he's just getting something he's not getting at home, and obviously with Mikey's uh, demise, it's sort of the as you know you would expect from the death of child. It just snaps everyone back into reality and makes them sort of reassess where they all go. Um, I mean that, that whole sort of scene with, with his uh, death scene, I, I did find a little perhaps as bad as it sounds, I did find it a little too comical uh, as he slides down the road. Yeah, I didn't like that that coat they had him in. That... It is a weird <laughs> zip on the hood, isn't it? So the, uh, the Michelin Man look he had going there, I thought, I thought that was a little much, maybe. Mm. But, I mean, I, again, it's just when he's out in the storm, I mean, yes, it's an excuse to show some real interest in ice visuals and yeah. seeing the effect of this, this storm freezing everything, but it's like... What the it's, hell are you doing out there, Mikey? Yeah, and, and, you know, visually the coat was, I think, just the point of having him be very visible and really have that contrast with his backdrop in those, you know, farther shots and, you know, making him, you know, when it happens that he's easily seen um, on the road because, mm. you know, there's a lot more stuff going on around you. But, you know, it it is, you know, like, there were a lot of things that didn't make sense with that scene. We, when he was out, like even him like jumping on the diving board, I was like in any normal situation, I've been in an ice storm. I've even been in freezing rain. And you are not jumping on this thing. You would have <laughs> slid down a million years ago. Like, it's, it's, it's not that easy. <laughs> yeah, that is true. There was just a little bit of ice out the other day when I was walking to work and people were just, you know, gingerly trying to cross at intersections and you know, really paying attention to the ground where they're going. Like, you, even a tiny bit of ice out there, you're slipping and sliding a bit and losing your balance. Yeah. yeah. Mm. This is also the second time that we've been led astray by someone in a red coat. If you obviously compare it to the ending of Don't Look Now, where we obviously take him for the streets of Venice by, as we, uh, for Don's Pleasance pursuit of what he assumes to be his daughter again in the red coat, and here we follow Mikey in the red coat. So it seems that. Ang Lee is also a thing for leading his audiences astray with uh, figures in red coats. I mean, what what is it? It is as about as audience that we're just sort of drawn to follow these like Red Riding Hood style figures um, as they lead us astray, and it never seems to end well for anyone. Well, I think it's a whole red thing. Like, aren't bulls are drawn by red, mm. right? And um, while you were talking, the first thing I thought about is um, The Matrix. Look out for the woman in the red dress, right? Exactly. Again, uh, like The Matrix. And who's afraid you... Roger Rabbit? Like, red, red again. Like, it's just... 
And what happens when you drawn you astray? What happens when you follow these? I mean, you follow one of the red dress, you get an agent with a gun in your face, and you follow exactly. You follow uh, Jessica Rabbit, and you know you end up in having your day screwed up seven ways on Sunday. So, <laughs> and you're also paired with the worst sidekick of all time. Again, back to the the key party. Anyone else find it weird that the preacher's at the key party? <laughs> I know he's a new I, I... ager, but still. <laughs> This isn't a Tarzan Vickers party, my friend. It's it's what are you doing here? You know right isn't it's not like this is like some subtle thing they're hiding. It's like right from the start we have that wonderful perfect shot of Alice and Jenny with the, the bowl with the car keys in. <laughs> and I, I had to actually like screenshot that because I love that shot so much of her just and she's got this like oh this suburban goddess like vibe to her she's just like all dressed up and she's this perfect hostess and yet she's here with the bowl of car keys you know we're going to play this like naughty game and uh and <laughs> see where it leads us astray and, oh and look here's the new age preacher that we met earlier who what is his his stick i mean a couple of the guys seem to think that he's a woman and it's like oh, i'm so glad I'm not got not got their keys so oh no so glad they haven't got my keys so as he's uh leaving the party so I just was really confused as to why he was there. I wonder if he had... Um, I wonder if he's his presence is something of a... Because he's... Been, you know, his main contact was with Elena yes. through the, the entire movie. And even at the party, kind of like beelines to her. And after their conversation, he decides to leave. So I wonder if it's, you know, the kind of like just the connection that he he wants to have with her that he's there see i i think it's kind of a non-threatening or nothing's gonna happen for elena friend that she can have Mm. that there's no chance anything's gonna happen like even um later on at that uh, that awkward sexual experience you know, something happened. And I think this is someone that when she's with this person, she knows that it's never going to go that way. Mm. So that's kind of why she hangs around him. That's kind of why he's around. I was just, I mean, the fact he's just so new age, just really sort of threw me off. He just, oh, the whole time he's on the screen, I just sort of got the feeling that if the church hadn't worked out for him, they'd probably be leading some hippie cult out in the desert, given half the <laughs> chances. So like, he just seemed a real odd choice for the for the role, and I wasn't sure whether whether this is the way it was supposed to be written or if it's just the way that they've cast this role that it uh, sort of froze us off. But it just made no sense. It's like, why would you be at this sort of party? I mean, it's very clear from the start what sort of party we're having, and surely it's the sort of thing that the church would be frowning upon, not, you know, saying, oh, this is fine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, so Norman, is there anything else in this film that you feel that we should be paying attention to with with this? Because obviously, it's hard. It's the sort of film that is a bit hard on your first sort of watch to sort of take it all in because there is so many moving sort of parts to it. I mean, we have see have three different plot threads going on here, and each of them, while in times they do mirror each other. Obviously, we've got the actions of the parents being mirrored by the the kids, and the fact that. When Christian Ricky's doing her seduction of um, Paul, she's seen wearing the Nor- the uh, Nixon mask. 
mm-hmm. which what do we feel the significance was with that that mask i mean is this her attempting to sort of hide herself in any way or is it I, I don't understand the the relevance of the next mask obviously he's this key figure in the background but i didn't understand why that would be the mask she chose to be shown in I just think she's trying to hide is why she has it on. Yeah. It's an attempt to hide. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too, yeah. But um yeah, no, no is there anything else at all that you feel needs to be sort of paid attention to? No, I think kind of the main the main points have been, have been hit. Um uh, I just think that I think that Christina Ricci kind of steals a film though. I I will say like she I find that she was the best character, and every time I, I saw it, I, she came more and more to the front as the best character in the movie. So her definitely, like, Wendy's character is definitely very um, complex, because there's, there's a lot of, I think, till right now, I still have a few moments where I feel a bit baffled about some of the things she's done. And, like, why she's kind of, like, between the two boys kind of thing. And I'm not really sure about, you know, like, I I, I kind of, you know, forget at a certain point of just, you know, of, of just, you know, the, that she's so young, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. How, like, like, she's interacting with these boys, but she feels so much older in the sense that, than, 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 like, you know, like, just the things she's doing and stuff. Yeah, she's very mature for her age in this yeah. film. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because of, you know, because as, as she's talking with, you know, um, that conversation I was saying she had with um, Paul when he comes home about their parents, she also seems to be so observant. And I wonder if it's because of what's going on at home that it kind of like matured her in, in into you know this much more mature character that we're seeing here yeah because her parents aren't parenting her right she has to do it herself yeah so when you're in those type of situations you grow up fast yeah or faster mm-hmm. and i, I guess the other thing i would say is just a lot about communication in this movie or lack thereof Mm-hmm. And on every on every level, like between married couples, uh, between people having affairs, amongst the kids, just a lack of communication. And I think that comes to a head um, in the one scene there where um, Kevin Klein and Joan Allen finally get down and get to bed together. And he goes to talk and she says, don't say anything because if you do, I know you're going to ruin the whole moment. I just, just communication, lack thereof, one minute they're finish, finishing each other's sentences, the next minute one's telling the other not to say a word. A lot of communication or, or gaps in communication in this film. Yeah. Cool. Um, I mean, is there anything else that you want to... Yeah, I, yep. yeah I have, um, I actually want to, I think that the opening by Tobey Maguire is so, so brilliant. And that and that's one of the things of why I have this issue of, you know, when we were talking about Tobey Maguire before and, you know, the Paul character and how 
important he is in this because he's kind of like this outside observer that just comes home and he sees the situation and kind of learns about it through his sister with his uh, his parents and stuff about his parents. And then he has this really, you know, fantastic little comparison to the Fantastic Four um, about, you know, just families in general and, you know, about the paradox that the closer you're drawn back in, the deeper into the void you go. And that pretty much outlines kind of like the the flow of the movie all the way till t- the end. And, and, and that, you know, final scene where, you know, they all, they all kind of like the family groups up together and goes to pick up Paul at the end. And I, and I find that so much brilliance in that whole you know, how that whole thing is executed. So for reviewing for this film, I mean, it's obviously there's a many different interesting paths you can sort of go down with, with this one. I mean, even though you look at Christina Ray's career at the point this film was released, I mean, sort of back-to-back, she did two films which already would make perfect pairing with this, and that would be uh, The Opposite of Sex, as well as uh, Buffalo 66, uh, directed by Vincent Gallio, who also leads actor. Um, Gallio, obviously being a Trump supporter, so it makes it a little more awkward to enjoy that one, but those would be sort of like the ones I would obviously first go to, along with, obviously, American Beauty, which I think in many ways is... Mm-hmm. Sort of the closest in tone to this one. I mean, again, that being released in the golden year of 1999, the greatest movie year ever. And, you know, if you don't believe me, internet, prove me wrong. So, um, but Kim, I mean, Kim Norman, uh, whichever you want to go first, I mean, what do you, would you pair with this? I guess I would say Nixon, maybe, because Joan Allen's Nixon's in the background here, and she plays Pat Nixon in, uh, in Oliver Stone's Nixon. <laughs> um, I actually, uh, my list had American Beauty, as you had mentioned before, yeah. and then, um, which was kind of like the o- obvious thing, and I, I kind of, my mind, I haven't seen the movie yet, but my mind kind of floated off to the whole Thanksgiving dinner thing, and I thought maybe August Osage County might be a good one, but I haven't seen the movie, so you guys can prove me wrong, um, and uh, on the line of Joan Allen, and in this really um, similar kind of communication family dilemma thing, I actually went with the upside of anger. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've yet to see those uh, films, but uh, I certainly certainly get the those looks. It sounds uh, sounds interesting. I mean, Nixon's one of those biopics that sort of came out and everyone sort of forgot. That it came out. Who plays actually Nixon in that one, Norman? Um, Anthony Hopkins. Oh. Yeah, because the only when it comes to like the presidential biographies, the only one I remember is obviously JFK, which you know that wonderful three plus hour epic from Oliver Stone, which apparently people don't like now. The cinema, the uh, cinema going public have decided to turn on it, much like Garden State, and nobody seems to understand want to say why. So. So I guess another movie I'd throw in there, too, is uh, Ordinary People. Okay. The obvious one, of course, American Beauty, but I'd throw Ordinary People in there as well. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, definitely plenty to muse over. I mean, Kim, I mean, obviously, as a first-time viewer, it's, at some point, can you see yourself going back to this film? Mm, if it actually goes on Netflix, maybe. <laughs> 
<laughs> not going to make the effort to like rent it or rent it like again? That. No, 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 okay. no, no, no. And Norman, is there still hope for like twenty plus screening of this one in your future? Well, it's not on as much as it used to be. Like it used to be on a lot. I'd yeah. flip it around and I settle in and I I'd see um oh there's Tobey Maguire coming home on the train. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this. It was on a lot for a while, so I saw it like a lot in a short period of time. Yeah. But I've not seen it on or around a lot lately. Like, it's not on Netflix anymore, and um, I look for it in Amazon Prime, but it's not on Amazon Prime yet. So we'll see. And it's not Disney, so I won't see it on Disney Plus. That's for sure. No, you can get it as part of the Criterion Collection, so it is available on their streaming service. Um, if you are somewhere in the world that actually gets the Criterion uh, Channel streaming service, because here in the Britain we don't. I don't know you guys have in Canada to do. Yeah, I think we do. I don't have it, but I think we do. Let's see, looking like a better option every single day. <laughs> um. So, but yeah, there's. Uh, you can obviously check it out for that. I mean, I don't know what the Criterion features are like for this one, so uh, you would obviously need to to check that out yourself. I mean, but um, yeah, it's certainly an interesting an interesting film. I'm obviously in the sort of scale of where we are. At the moment, I mean, where do you feel it sort of stands? I mean, this is a is this a good example of an Angley movie, or is it sort of like a lesser work for yourself, Kim? From where it stands, like up to where we are right now, yeah, or as it as, it, as it, where we are in the sort of like the the filmography as it stands. I mean, obviously at the moment we've just had you know Father Knows Best, and we've had Sense and Sensibility, and now obviously this film. I mean, I think in terms of, like, depth, this one definitely has a lot of depth to it. Mm. Like, it, it definitely will have that kind of rewatchability to kind of see a little bit more about these characters. But I think, like, in terms of strength, I still think, like, something like um, uh, uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman or The Wedding Banquet still stands higher on that whole rewatchability thing and just, you know, the whole... Um, culture clash and you know um, the family dilemma element and that sort of thing for me at least yeah okay and Norman for yourself same uh, question I mean obviously if you were just to view this um, in terms of its place in Ang Lee's filmography at at this point in his career obviously ignoring the films that uh, came after I mean where do you sort of rank it I mean do you sort of rate it higher obviously being a something that you've watched so much and obviously had more time to sort of die, uh, dive in and get deeper into. Yeah, I, I rate it. I have a, It's my second favorite angling, angling movie of all time. So it's, <laughs> I haven't, I really have rated highly. Okay. So it's right I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious. What's your first one? Yeah. What's your favorite <laughs> angling movie? Uh, Life of Pi. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> the life. one that the one that I snuck in. <laughs> Maybe we should get you back for Life of Pi. <laughs> I lo- that's my. That's amazing how that that movie is. Yeah. It's such a small set that has so much going on. It's just amazing. Fantastic. Um, for myself, it ain't no wedding banquet. I'm not watching this film four times in one weekend like I did with that movie. Oh, beautiful. Um, so I think at the moment for myself it's somewhere in the, in the middle when we obviously look at his, his career and I think maybe as we go on maybe if I view it a couple more times or had time more time to sort of think about it because this is coming pretty soon after I've, I've watched the film I mean it's only so yesterday I saw the, 
So the film and it's sort of still pretty fresh in my mind. I'm still sort of reeling over the little sort of complexities of it. So maybe as uh, when we come to do the full evaluation of the uh, film, mm-hmm. maybe it, it'd be different. Maybe we'll have a never surprise like Virgin Suicides was when we looked at Sofia Coppola, which I had as my, you know, my hidden gem because I feel that it it's just not wasn't as appreciated as as uh, it perhaps should have been compared to the the other films. So. Maybe we'll have another uh, Cinderella story like that and by, when we get okay. to the end. So just one, one question. Going back to the end, we can't do a, a sex scene yeah. comment. Is this up to now or are you talking about his whole catalogue of films? Oh, it's his whole catalogue of films. So I'd say that when you com- compare, it to, compare it to the his sex scenes in films, it never seems like anyone's having particular fun. And even when you have like supposedly romantic encounters like when we look at Brokeback Mountain it's like that doesn't look like it's a fun time and perhaps short I don't know maybe I've just been like corrupted in how I view the world by like too many Gregoraki movies and perhaps wish he'd done Brokeback Mountain instead which again I'm sure would have been a very very different movie um but uh yeah certainly when it comes to his films everything feels like very awkward and I think he gets the sort of benefit of the doubt because of the situation his characters are often in, whether they're sort of retaliating spouses we see here, or certainly in the case like the wedding banquet where you've got a gay man drunkenly engaging in sex with a uh, with the woman he's having a fake marriage with. And even when you look at uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, the sort of scenes there, it's it can be obviously mistaken for being something else, but it never seems to he never seems to really... It, it seems to be like where his uh, shortcomings lie uh, as a director. I mean, yes, he can do a lot of visual and visually interesting stuff and certainly play jump rope between genres, but uh, certainly sex on film just seems to loot. It seems to be something that he's never quite mastered. So Even in uh, Less Caution? That got an NC-17 rating. It might have an NC-17 rating, but it doesn't make it any prettier, though, does it? Okay. I mean, you can you can show me plenty of like nudity and and all the right things that we have on the screen, but it's not connecting with the audience. It's still not doing what it what the director's intending with those sort of sequences. So okay. All right. Well, I'm we're we're me and uh, Elwood will have this re re ignite this conversation after I've seen Brokeback Mountain and Let's Caution. Because <laughs> I have nothing to say about it right now. <laughs> At this okay. current point in his career, there's not a whole lot of um sex scenes that's gone on or like anything that's you know other than wedding banquet at this point i think so interesting take though interesting take i'll say mm-hmm. cool. um oh thank you norman for obviously joining us uh where can people come and find you and what if you exciting things you've got coming up yeah well you can find me at flick hunter uh flick hunter.blogspot.com at mixed day one two on twitter and uh just finishing up my coverage of the European Union Film Festival here in Toronto, and Kim knows about this, but uh, I'm starting Thursday. It's Blood in the Snow, my last, it's, it's all Canadian horror film festival. And that starts Thursday, and uh, kind of my last film festival I cover during the year, rounding out the year. And we, we do have snow on the ground here uh, in Toronto, so, you know, we'll see if we get some blood in it for the festival. <laughs> Okay, that will, uh, and Kim, where does our joint for the Yang Lee filmography take us to next? 
Okay, so for the first time, we have a director that has enough movies that we can skip over stuff. So we're skipping over the 1999 Ride with the Devil. Sorry, and, uh, <laughs> and we're heading to 2000 with um, his Wushu film, um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yep, so uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, very important film in terms of modern Wushu movies, and certainly in the case it sparked this whole revival, as we're obviously getting to on the next episode. But uh, an interesting contrast as well. Here he's obviously done Sense and Sensibility, and now he switches over to the East for Sense and Sensibility with sword fighting, and certainly a pitch that was given to Michelle Yeoh, which got her on board almost immediately. And uh, certainly a film that's going to have some interesting nerdy deep dives when we obviously get into the deeper uh, elements of that film but uh, that's obviously coming up on our next episode if you haven't done already please do hit the like and subscribe buttons and maybe leave us a review it all helps raise the profile of the show you can also follow us on facebook and twitter we are also on hold to check out our archive which is moves and podcast.wordpress.com and on there you can find not only our complete archive of episodes from all previous seasons uh, which obviously previously we've got the whole archive there for Paul W.S. Hansen, Guillermo del Toro, Sofia Coppola and now these episodes for Ang Lee as well but you can also check out our Friday Film Club and other fun writing there as well but uh, thank you again to Norman for joining us and discussing the ice storm thank you very much and uh, thank you as always to Kim and uh, we'll be back next time to talk about Crouch and Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Good night. Like the pine trees lining the winding road, I've got a name, I've got a name. Like a singing bird in the croaking toad, I've got a name. I've got a name And I carry it with me like my daddy did But I'm living the dream that he kept here Rolling me down the highway Rolling me down the highway Moving ahead so life won't pass me by Whistling down the sky I've got a song I've got a song Like the welcome will And the babies cry I've got a song I've got a song And I carry it with me And I sing it loud If it gets me nowhere I go there proud Rolling me down the highway, rolling me down the highway, moving ahead so life won't pass me by.
I could share it if you want me to If you're going my way I'll go with you Bend me down the highway Don't let me down the highway Moving ahead so life won't pass me by Bend me down the highway Don't let me down the highway Moving ahead so life won't pass me by <laughs> 